The subject for the evening talk is the thought of freedom. I think one of the things which we have noticed in the world in which we live in is the elevation, we might say, of the concept and the idea of freedom. And living in the society in which we live, this particular concept is used with frequency, with an alarming frequency, in which we have been told again and again, as in so many other areas, we have been told that we live in the free world. We live in a free society. And what happens, I believe, that when a concept such as freedom is repeated again and again, it gains some kind of metaphysical entity. It becomes something. Feelings, emotions, thoughts, belief, as it were, are projected into this particular concept and it's raised to a kind of supernatural level. Once it's raised to this height, then we come to believe it. We believe in it through the generality that it creates and we believe that there's some ultimate truth to it. The consequences of this elevation and projection onto a particular uh, concept is that it very easily blinds us to the actualities. So when we're talking of freedom and not being free, in the general social and political sense, we're actually speaking of something in relationship to something else. And we are told that in our society we have the right to write what we wish, say what we wish, think what we wish, communicate what we wish. And within the, the constraint of that is in our society within the framework of law and order. Sometimes we look at other societies, and I'll bring this into just how much this relates to what we're doing here. Sometimes we look at other societies and we interpret other societies as being less free. And I think sometimes when we give consideration to what freedom is, actually we're talking more specifically about desire and what we want. So freedom has become interpreted or reduced to the individual desiring what he or she wants within the framework of the law. This has become, as it were, a definition, a description of freedom. Recently, some months ago, I had lunch with sounds a contradiction in terms, but apparently it isn't. I had lunch with a Marxist theologian who lives in East Germany. I understand that this year more than 50,000 
East Germans have fled from East Germany into West Germany. What is characterized here as uh, the race or the run to enter the free world, to be free human beings. Certainly that may be an aspect of the motive, but I would never underestimate the motive for the desire to get more of what one doesn't have. And this, is, this Marxist theologian commented to me, and I thought it was a perceptive comment, he said what is happening in East Germany is that we consistently compare ourselves with West Germany. With each evaluation, they seem to have more than we do. They seem to be more free to get what they want more than we are. Therefore, we feel dissatisfied through this comparison. We watch their television, we see their newspapers, we hear their radio, all of which reinforces this. He said, why aren't we comparing ourselves with India? So, when speaking of themes such as freedom, I think we need to look with concern about the elevation of the status of that and to look more realistically in our society and at ourselves to see what freedom is. What is it to have a thought of freedom? And certainly, because of our forebearers, because of our ancestors and some of our contemporaries who have and continue to struggle to find and reveal to us greater freedoms in life. But still, when we look at ourselves, where is our freedom? What shows our freedom? What is a thought of freedom? Sometimes when we give consideration to freedom, we give consideration to it at the psychological level, the emotional level, and important and necessary it is. So sometimes our experience is of immense pain and bondage to a particular event or experience in our life. And understandably, when we think of freedom, we think about it in relationship to a particular event or situation in which we have found ourselves. So during the course of today, and your experience today, or since you arrived, there may be experiences, memories, events going on for you in your life at this present time where the interest in that is in some way of change towards, being, towards finding a freedom in which one doesn't feel so locked in to the situation. So I think the quest for freedom, the, the, the thought for freedom, is something quite deeply rooted in us. And I think when there is suffering and conflict and some difficulty going on in our life, that thought to be 
free from this situation, to be free from being trapped in this situation, can come as a very strong thought. The wish to be free, to be a free human being within a difficult or painful situation. I think the very thought arising of the wish to be free, that thought itself is a reminder to us of something other than pain and conflict, a reminder to us of joy and wonder in life, but the thought itself won't liberate. Understand? The issue is there. The wish for the resolution is there. The thought I wish to be free from that, that is there. But just the thought alone isn't going to transform the situation. <laughs> Let me give you a, a, a story. Rather a touching uh, story. I went to listen to Archbishop Bloom, who is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church for Britain. He told me of a man that who came to see him who was, who was suffering, who was pain, in pain. This man, who was in his 80s, had said that during the 1920s, when there is still conflict and warring taking place in different parts of the Soviet Union, had been in the people's militia, in the people's military. And his fiancée also was with him. And they had travelled in for the, uh, the Russian, for the, ar for the army. And in one of the skirmishes which took place, he accompanied with his fiancée, he very, he accidentally and very, very tragically shot his wife, his fiancée. And the bullet hit her in the back of the head and she was killed instantly. And the shock and the guilt just traumatized him right down deep into his cellular life. Some years later, this man had left uh, the Soviet Union, had come to the West, but no matter what he did and where he went, he continued to be haunted with guilt. He tried every method that seemed to be available to him through the various therapies, the healings. He is a very re deeply religious man, deeply devoted to God through uh, prayers to God, begging for forgiveness, endeavoring to let go. And he'd gone to Archbishop Bloom and he said, that I just have one thought in my life. I just want to be free from the guilt which I've been carrying for more than 60 years. That's, I just want to end my life free from this pain which has haunted me all these years. And Archbishop Bloom, in a moment of insight, spontaneous awareness of the situation, turned to this man, this very elderly man, and he said to him, go back to that time, go back 
to that particular day when you were accompanying your fiance there in that skirmish. Vi visualize that whole scene. Bring to mind that your fiance and go to her. Go directly to her who still, in a way, deeply resides inside of you through these years and ask for her forgiveness. And the man, he, old man, he, he sat there and he closed his eyes and he recalled the events of that tragic day in his life and his fiancée and her presence and her companionship and he asked for forgiveness. And immediately, of course, there was that deep inner response and from that an inner response came from her of forgiveness. She understood what had happened and how easily such things happen in the time of war. And the situation changed <coughs> dramatically. The man was free from this burden in which he had used simple resources familiar to many of us here in which care, affection, the turning of the attention back into the old, into that situation, had a transforming capacity to it. So there was the thought for freedom, this to be free of the burden of the old, to be free of the guilt. But from that thought it required a means, a skillful way to channel that thought, to keep that endeavour for that freedom, to find that freedom. So I think our thought for freedom is a very important and significant thought that we have. When we come into a situation as we have here and with the various mind states and the various experiences which are taking place, one of the things which occurs, and I refer to this just a little bit briefly, yesterday evening, is how we tend to prioritize meditational work, mindfulness, observation, these kind of uh, perceptions which we repeat frequently and to some degree we neglect the thought and the place of thought. And I think one of the dangers is with that, and as has been uh, pointed out, is how easily we, as it were, put all our eggs in the single basket. We imagine for us that mindfulness alone, the power of mindfulness, the power of a concentrated mind, is somehow magically is going to be the cure-all for whatever takes place. And with that, the thought world itself tends to have gotten and continues to get in meditation a very bad press. And I would like to give it a good press for once. And in that, with the thought which takes place, some of the thought is just odd bits of the chatter which is going on. The brain cells like to do their dance from time to time and why not in the middle of the meditation. 
why should one be so privileged as to not having any chattering brain cells? So, so that needs to, to take place, just all part of the scheme of things. Sometimes we notice that the stream of thought which is taking place has a continuity to it, and the continuity to it is a habit. The very act of immediately cutting off the habit might be preventing us from Im some immediate insight and understanding. Sometimes with the habit of thought, the habit of thought works significantly in the same kind of way. So one of the ways, and I referred briefly this last night, is that when one looks at the thought and the stream of thoughts, what one notices in it is the appearance of self, what else, I, me and my, and with I, me and my, as though somehow or other we really are the centre of the universe. And the idea that the earth revolves around the sun is really a myth, the earth revolves around me. And everything else is only any good insofar as it's good for me. So sometimes the thought that we know, that the, the stream of thoughts and I and me and my seem remarkably alive and well. <laughs> popping, out of the, popping out of the thoughts, one thought after the other. And to imagine that one could have thoughts without I and my seems far too big an expectation in this life. So one notices this. But then one looks a little caref more carefully at the stream of thought which are taking place. And sometimes it's not just I and my in that stream, but there's also a feeling going on in that stream as well. And sometimes the feeling is very typical. For some, the feeling is negative, distinctly unpleasant. The feeling such as being judgmental, most common. The feeling of self-criticism. The thoughts concluding that one isn't worth anything. The thoughts which are imagining that one will be worth something when somebody else says so. Then one will be gain worth through the affirmation of somebody else. Honestly. Look at our minds. Look at the changeability of them. Look at the unreliability of them. Look at the dance that goes on in our minds. And we are depending on other people and their mind states for us to feel self-worth. I mean, just stop and think about that. <laughs> Surely every confirmation of our changing mind today, boredom, unrest, dissatisfaction, peace, calm, judgment, criticism, irritation, annoyance. And we want to spend our life walking around looking for somebody to tell us that we are the centre of the universe. 
<laughs> so sometimes we observe that there is this pattern of thought, we're acknowledging the I and the my which goes along with it, and we acknowledge too that there may be, in a very common one, is the lack of self-acceptance, a common, I think one of the most common social problems that we experience, and it shows itself as that negative tinge, that constant feeling of dissatisfied with oneself. Remembering oneself is being referred to as body. Look at the relationship that we have to the body. A couple of centimeters either way influences dramatically our peace of mind. Just think about it. A little bit of extra flesh. Oh, and terrible anxiety. Oh my God, I'm digging my grave with my fork. And all that pain and conflict. All the thoughts which are ari arising. I'm getting older. A few strands of grey. By itself, it's a lovely colour, except when it's in my hair. <laughs> so again, the relationship of the my with the feeling, with the stream of thoughts, easily sets us up. Similarly with feeling, similarly with attitude, with states of mind. And then we get the message to us. And someone else has generated the thought, who has been granted authority to generate the thought. Cut these thoughts. Finish these thoughts. Let them go and get back to breathing. Get back to basics. basics. Get back to walking. For some, as a methodology, it might work. It might really be effective. But for some, it isn't, and some of you know well and well enough through meditative work and retreat forms that in spite of the willingness, sometimes this, the means, the resources being used, breathing in and out, mindfulness being here and now, doesn't seem to be working adequately. So can we take note of that thought for freedom. What easily happens with the stream of thought and the I, the my, and the negative feeling which is running through it, is that it gains such a momentum in our life, it seems to permeate huge numbers of circumstances. So, dare we take the risk, in our meditations, in our sittings and walkings, of actually introducing a thought which is in contrast to it. What in the Dharma teachings of the East is called the opponent force. So instead of saying, I have to let go of this pattern, I've just got to get back to my breath, we bring in a thought which is in contrast to this negative thought and therefore actively interrupts it. Sometimes it's through memory. One thinks of the past and the past seems black. The past seems nothing but painfulness. So then we might just turn our attention and, and ask ourselves, this is the positive thought coming in, is that really the case? Is that really how the past has been? 
Has it really been one continuous misery from morning through to night, 365 days a year? Or am I slightly exaggerating? <laughs> Has this relationship, this woman, this man that I've been living with been such hell, torture, misery, jealousy, fear, anxiety, or were there moments in it when actually I loved him? I loved her. It was beautiful. It might only have be been on the first evening. <laughs> I acknowledge that. <laughs> but at least it is a slight variation on the theme. So with the thought for freedom and the introduction of the thought for freedom, it is to break, to interrupt the idea of continuity. Because this thought of continuity, particularly in its negative mode, can continue and pursue consciousness willfully throughout our life. And so what begins to happen and some of you report this in the small groups and the one-to-one. -one. That in fact, when we do begin to settle into the moment, when we do begin to fall back and settle back into what's happening, what we find, and it is unsatisfactory and it is painful, what we find is that we might be settling back right onto the pattern. We settle, we, 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 we relax right onto what we don't want to relax on or into. And when that happens, what I say is, since thought has much, is given and granted much power in the world, since thought is all an ideologies, let's see if at times, appropriately, we can take the thought which is the antidote to the prevalent unsatisfactory thought and put it right in there. We don't have to do, engage in this morning, noon and night, but if it just interrupts the continuity, one remembers that beautiful moment, that beautiful situation, that time, that place, that person, that experience, even sometimes with the one who seems to have caused so much pain to us. It's not that we're trying to deny the actuality, but we're trying to show to consciousness there's more to life than memory and typical ways of thinking. Understand? There is more to life than what the immediate memory says and the typical ways of thinking. When we give consideration to thought and the stream of thought, thought itself can't be separated, like freedom or anything else, can't be separated from all the surrounding conditions that accompany it and go along with it. So let us take the take. Some of you today will probably have experienced some boredom. <laughs> the degree, as it were, the 
thickness of this boredom may vary from person to person. One might even have a perception that one's life is a totally boring experience and a complete non-event. So that when one comes into the meditation room or outside of it, the boredom sets in. It might possibly be operating now. <laughs> if it is, I'll try not to take it personally. <laughs> so boredom can set in in the face of any number of different circumstances. With boredom, other patterns are going on. It also doesn't have any existence by itself. If we just remember this in life, it'll be worthwhile. Nothing has any existence by itself. It dependently arises. It is interconnected, interrelated. So if we speak of boredom, we're speaking of it in relationship to. But sometimes the boredom seems to be so pervasive, seems to go right down through to the whole of the cellular life, that one can't see what it's related to. One is just saying, I'm bored. Bored with meditation, bored with this talk, bored with being here, bored with others, bored with the food, whatever it might be. So sometimes with boredom, it generates itself in all directions. Everything is boring. And it's like something has gone on inside of us, some pattern, some reinforcement, which, as it were, comes up in front of consciousness and, like looking through the world, through dark glasses, everything appears much the same colour. What's that saying? When there is boredom, the thought comes in and says, I am bored. This is boring. So the thought, in a way, becomes fuel, for the, like wood for the fire. I am bored. Then the whole body, with a few more thoughts, this is so boring, got to go to another meditation, so boring. Am I going to last this retreat? It's so boring. All this goes on. So the whole body e eventually begins to wrap itself around the boredom one becomes a walking boredom. <laughs> and everything kind of shapes, oh, you can see, you know, like this, like this. Just like the, 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 the woman who said of her, of her husband, when we first met, we were so in love, and now he's become a snoring armchair. <laughs> this is after 10 years. He's so bored. So sometimes we see this, we perceive this in the world around us. And sometimes we see this boredom. But with the boredom, with the lack of sensation, the lack of an event, a, per a pervasive non-event, mind and body can't last very much with that. So sometimes what happens is we begin to pursue, here comes the desire now, 
we begin to pursue a sensation to relieve this experience of boredom. We can't see the cost to people, to ourselves, and to planet of the mind state of boredom. We can't see the cost, tragic cost. And we notice and we observe in our, our world that the mythology of having money and wealth and privilege and being rich, we think that's achievement. And we see the immense cost in terms of boredom and the consequences of boredom through the, through the desire and through the wanting to get a sensation to relieve the, the, the permissive and pervasive boredom. And I think we need to look at this boredom. It won't, doesn't just stay by itself. It, there's movement that goes on in and with it, which is to relieve it through some sensation, usually through getting something from the world to help get rid of this state. And we live in a, a culture of this. So then we say, well, let me, let me see that state of mind. Let, let, let me see if I can, am I willing to explore it? Am I willing to say to myself, and here comes again the thought for freedom, am I willing to ask myself, do I want to continue living and, and being a, a victim of boredom? Do I want to go on being a prisoner of this mind state? Has, it, has this mind state reached a state of, of it's intolerable? serving no respect to oneself, nor to the world that we live in. And I think sometimes we need to apply the thought, firstly to ask ourselves, do I really want to change? Am I, am I really interested in change? Bring that thought in, then if that's clear, if one knows that, that's already most of the way there, then some expression, some methodology, some skillful means to help transform a situation. But first be clear, do I really want to change? Do I really want to be a liberated human being? That thought's worth asking. Sometimes, with the state of mind which appears for us, and the thoughts which reinforce it, this is the unsatisfactory thoughts, which reinforce it, with that reinforcement, it might be that it's a mask. So we might bring in thought again. With this state of mind, and this kind of state of mind, and other uh, states of mind, is this mi state of mind, in a way, hiding somewhere else? Is it a kind of camouflage, a kind of self-protection, in a way, from some access to something else at the feeling level? So again, I think that thought for freedom can be wisely and usefully introduced into, the, into a mind state or a stream of thought which is perpetuating itself and the little voice is inside is saying, this is unsatisfactory. When the mind state is unsatisfactory and, and it's perpetuating itself, 
and you know it's unsatisfactory, you, you, you feel it, you sense that it is, then to bring in the thought. What can be done with this? What, 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 what's, what needs to be learned from this? What's this obscuring? Do I want to be free from this? Do I want to go living in a continuity of this idea of I, who I am? Do I want to go on living in this continuity of who I am, this idea? So in our mindfulnesses, in our meditations, though we're emphasizing that, though we're saying, let's make the breath the anchor, let's really be respectful to the breath, but in a way which doesn't exclude thought, it says thought can be skillfully introduced in this kind of work and be a resource for us, not an interruption. With the thought and the thought for freedom, sometimes we notice, and if we just sometimes just catch ourselves with the stream of thought, self-knowledge, self meaning what refers to what is immediately familiar, self-knowledge comes through the movement of mind. Where there is the movement of mind, there's self-knowledge. And it's an unfolding, ongoing discovery for us. So, sometimes we notice the immediate impact of what takes place. There's the breath. In a moment, one is moved. The thought starts. With the thought, there may be some content to it. So, we say, there's the thought, the I and the my, there's a feeling factor which is there somewhere that we may not pick it up, and with that it has a continuity. Sometimes, in that flow of events, sometimes some of the information may be factual. Right? The, the, the immediate may be factual. Factual, oh, um, oh, I forgot to bring my shawl into the meditation room, and it's drafty. So one is sitting, feeling some cold sensations. From that bare experience, the cold sensation, and forgetting to bring in the blanket or the shawl, there's the fact, the simple fact. What happens after the fact? The rest of the sitting could be spent feeling miserable, sad, disillusioned, desiring to rip somebody's shawl off their back, <laughs> close the windows, go back home, all sorts of things. So from the bare information which has taken place, the thought is recorded in a simple way, shall we say, the actuality, but then what the mind does with the fact. Upon what the mind does with the fact shapes peace of mind and unhappiness. So sometimes we could respond to it differently. It could remind us 
not with guilt, but with understanding of our personhood, of the privileges which we have. That privilege of having a blanket. Regularly, annually, Henrietta here and I, we go to teach in, in Budgaya. It's the place where the Buddha is uh, said to have uh, woken up from the dream of imagined existence. And Budgaya and Bihar itself, the state of Bihar, is, even in India, is regarded as especially poor, as especially violent, as especially corrupt, as especially sick in terms of health. In the morning times, in the temple there, I give a talk to the children in the, in the villages. A, an Indian monk very kindly translates uh, into Hindi, the, or Magadhi, which is the local language, and the children just come. The talk starts not long after dawn. And the children, they arrive, they barely have any anything, any clothing on at all. And they're standing there, because they're living in the villages, and often not even a blanket at night, just a piece of cotton. And sometimes the nights in the winters of India are especially cold. And the children stand there, and they're waiting on the horizon for the sun to arise, just to come up and greet the new day. And these young children from babes in arms who have been held by their five-year-old brothers and sisters to children of 10 or 12, they're standing there and they're jumping. And they're jumping up and down to get the sun onto as much of their body as possible because they're so cold. And I think when we are too self-preoccupied, when the thought of self and I and my and what I want, when there's just basically a small inconvenience, what that means for us is that we're missing something. We're blinded by our wanting. We're blinded by this for me, and somehow we're missing. We're not seeing, we're not understanding. And again, I feel that sometimes just the thought, just the thought of the children in Budgaya, just the thought of others who are not so fortunate, can act not only to moderate us and our way of being in, in the world, but actually liberate us liberate us from the nightmare of exclusive self-thinking. So sometimes with some of the discomforts and pains and the thought which goes with it, the sensations which occur for, for us, in a way it can be a resource for empathy. In a way it can be an immediate revelation of being close to others. What makes and contributes to that is the way we think about it. The way we think about experiences. And I think you and I in our situation here, 
with a thought for freedom and a genuine down-to-earth freedom in life, have, a, have some time and space on our hands. We have some opportunity to be mindful, be conscious and see the movement of thought. To really track it carefully. To acknowledge it, it's I and it's my and the feelings and all that we referred to. But equally important, maybe more importantly, is if we do that, if we explore that, it might, it might just give us access to something which is not so tied up with the state of mind. Sometimes, just in the course of the day, and sometimes it occurs when people ar arrive here, and one says, wow, especially if it's the first time here, you say, God, they're a somber-looking lot. Everybody's going around <coughs> looking so serious and so stiff and straight. What place have I come into here? What, what's, what, what on earth is going on here? And one's perception and thought is to generalize the whole situation. Everybody looks so yucky. And this image, this image is the beginning of war. the beginning of conflict, the beginning of the nation-state, the beginning of groups, the beginning of territories, the beginning of all the pain of this earth between humanity is founded and requires for its sustenance and its belief, it requires the image. Without the image, there can't be war. So if we can look in ourselves and see that movement, that projection, that generalization, that discrimination that takes place, and see that, and stop and question that, and say, is this actually true? Is every human being here somber, miserable, serious, unhappy, depressed, stuck, zombie? And one might find that in looking around, the myth of the image begins to be a little bit questionable. Yes, there are some people who appear to be having a difficult time. There are some people who seem to be in the rhythm of it. There are some people who seem to be very peaceful and content and just love it here. And there are people in this room who love being here and it's a joy and a, uh, a happiness for those people. But sometimes we can't see that because the image has been abstracted and the thought has accentuated and built up this image. Aren't we tired of living this way? So again, the thought can come in just to raise a question. 
not to deny totally the original perception, but just to raise it so that we begin to see the alternative to the immediate reaction. I think then thought is serving our, the best interests of people and planet. We're experiencing something and it's unsatisfactory, that's the first thing. We recognize it's unsatisfactory, we explore that, we look at that, and if it's appropriate, we bring in the thought which looks opposite to it, looks in a way which doesn't just assume that the original perception and the image is the truth. Then thought liberates, begins to shake thought. The thought for freedom begins to be used usefully and pragmatically to disturb the continuous image, to disturb, to disturb the sustained idea about ourselves or about another or others or life or teachings or practice or meditation or today or tomorrow or yesterday or next week. Wherever there's a continuity of view and we recognize we're getting stuck with it, let the thought come in to shake the foundations of it. Let's be free, not prisoners. Once the Buddha was talking to his son, his son's name is Rahula, his uh, sons, about, and apparently this conversation took place with his son, and his son was about seven or eight years of age. And I, am, as a part-time uh, single parent, have a, a daughter um, about the same age, seven or eight years of uh, age. And like a number of people who are um, parents um, in this world, I wouldn't call it um, uh, a planned family by um, any stretch of the imagination. And uh, I remember, if I may say, just, um, where are we? She's eight years old. So getting on for nine years, nine years ago, I was on a retreat. These things happen on retreats. I wouldn't say on retreats, the consequences. <laughs> I should be careful. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Yes, I should look at that thought, right. Um, so <laughs> and some um, nine years ago, I was on a re retreat and uh, facilitating in uh, Australia. And uh, Gwenwin, my uh, partner, was on the retreat. So we had an agreement, and an agreement was on that retreat, that during the retreat, we would revert to the kind of role. Uh, me in the, uh, the role of the facilitator, uh, teacher or whatever, and her as the uh, participant and so forth. So that applied in small groups and in the one-to-one -one situation. Part of the way through the re retreat, she came for uh, the one-to-one, -one, and then she uh, said to me, uh, well, she said, I have something to say. And then she went rather, rather quiet. 
See, so usually you know, thought arises, we've had this, you know, oh God, what have I done now? And then uh, she said to me, um, I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> Br breathe, like this. <laughs> so sometimes there's a situation which arises <laughs> somewhat unexpectedly, and then the thought arises with it and the consequences. <laughs> so I'm, this reminds me of the Buddha. The, so the Buddha's... <laughs> it's a slightly different story, but let me get back. So the Buddha was talking with his son, Rahula, who's about my daughter's age, seven, eight years of age. And the Buddha said, with thought, he said, all those beings of the past of the present, and all beings of the future who come to wisdom and liberating understanding have used the resource of thought. All beings who have come to wisdom, to clarity of heart and mind, have employed, have used the resource of thought in the process. Past, he said, present, he said, and future. So I think, I regard this as a uh, tremendous affirmation of the usefulness and the resourcefulness of thought in the meditative work. And what surprised me in listening to him was he's talking in this way to a seven-year-old and I can't imagine myself talking my daughter quite the language that he, he used. He must have had an extremely high IQ son, but anyway. So my, my daughter's name, um, incidentally, is Nashona, which means spring, and Satya, which means truth. And in part, when Gwenwin said she was pregnant and then the baby came, this really was the spring of truth. And in these situations, thought about relationships which occur with frequency on retreat, where the thought is painful, especially painful, then we want to be aware of that and see whether that is just a way of perceiving. And where the thought is joyful and happy and grateful and appreciative thought, and when that's manifesting for us, to appreciate that and to acknowledge that as an occurrence, without, and this is an important point here, without attributing it to a person. Understand? One appreciates a person, one has gratitude for a person, one loves a person, one is touched by a person, but very easily we attribute, we say, this person's causes me so much joy. And if we think in those exclusive terms, we are likely to become dependent on that person through thinking this way. And joy comes as much through countless circumstances, inner and outer, as it does through a person. 
So with thought which is painful, we're looking at that carefully to see if there's an alternative. With thought which is joyful and wonderful, and that occurs of past and present, looking at that in an expansive way so that it doesn't mislead us into becoming dependent and attributing a particular cause or person to it. And I think if we can understand that here, if we can get a sense of that here, in this meditative work, I think a sense of freedom isn't very far away. I think it's very, very close at hand. And I think thought isn't a, a, a blind spot. I don't think thought has to be excluded from freedom in life. I don't think we have to be concerning ourselves with transcending thought, or ending thought, or stopping thought. I don't think thought is any more a hindrance to liberation and wisdom than the leaves hanging on the trees. I think thought and the leaf on the tree shares the same nature. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings experience a thought of freedom. So let's have our two-minute quiet period together, shall we? <laughs> 